expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Menconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hey, good evening. And also in studio today, we're lucky enough to uh, have back on the program once again, Jane Ricards of The Economist. Uh, hello to you as well. Hello, Keith. Today on the show, we're uh, taking a look at Taiwan's reaction to the latest goings-on in the South China Sea. Uh, We've got a fair amount of crime news to get to toward the end with the rescue of a kidnapped Hong Kong businessman earlier this week and the busting of an international sex trafficking ring. And we'll be rounding things out with a look at gay pride festivities set for tomorrow in Taipei. Uh, But first, we were this close, this close to making it through the week without any big campaign news to report. Almost got to do a whole show without looking at election politics, but... KMT Chairman Eric Ju came out yesterday with, well, he had quite a few things to say. Uh, looks like he's trying to really flesh out his campaign platform. Uh, so, you know, you can't blame him for that. But it does mean that we're going to have to spend this first segment on campaign politics, taking a look at uh, some of these proposals. Uh, Gavin, uh, I think the one that uh, stood out the most was what he had to say about the role of the premier in government. Yeah, he called for a return to the cabinet system basically. And while he stopped short of saying that he will push for proposals for constitutional amendments, he said he was only referring to the spirit of the ROC constitution rather than doing anything. And apparently the ROC constitution, when he was talking about the cabinet system, defines the premier as the nation's top executive official. That means the president is technically only in charge of foreign defence and cross-strait affairs. Of course, the president gets the big house. That's the important thing. Uh, And so kind of the thrust of what he's getting at is right now it is uh, the president that appoints the premier and he's saying that he wants a bigger role for the legislature in that. Yeah, he's calling for lawmakers to be able to appoint the premier. Okay. Currently the lawmakers have to okay the premier, I believe. Uh, no, I don't think that's in place at the moment. It's not in place at the moment no, either, is it? No, it's purely up to the president. I think he wants to reinstall that He wants practice. to reinstall that practice, that's right, yeah, yeah. But of course, the, the cabinet system and the premier's status was one of the issues, I believe, the student protesters were yeah. talking about. Yeah, when I spoke with uh, Lin Fei Fan uh, back when, you know, they were uh, the Sunflower Movement was occupying uh, the, the legislative yuan, uh, that was one of the first things that he said to me is, uh, you know, I asked him, why are you guys out here? And he what he, the way that he put it is he said that Taiwan is in the middle of a constitutional crisis. Uh, there is too much executive authority uh, and uh, there's no way to check that power. So uh, this seems to be one way, you know, giving the legislature more power to appoint the premier uh, to check that uh, executive power. Uh, Jane, what do you see being behind this proposal? Well, I had a completely different interpretation, but um. As we mentioned earlier, that Jew could be killing um, several birds with the one stone, but mm. I thought that Jew might be banking on the KMT getting winning a majority in the legislature or ha- else having a significant say. And so, if the ca- if legislature has the power to appoint the premier, it would give the KMT much more say in a future DPP government. Right. So maybe the DPP would have the president, but they wouldn't get all the say. Yes. Yeah. He also Chew this week called for the. He also says something about the. He wants to make the consultation system within the legislature more transparent. 
these other, you know, they have meetings. Everything has to be public. There can be no closed door meetings there. Mm-hmm. And he also wants to make it mandatory for the legislative speaker to remain neutral. I think right. he's barking up the wrong tree there, to be honest with you. I don't think that's ever going to happen. Yeah. But I, so that's a bit of a push. But never, that's just me being a complete pessimist. Well, yes, it is rather contradictory <laughs> that the KMT is, you know, amending laws to allow Wang Jinping to run for a fourth term. So rather than make laws to suit the system, they're making laws to suit the person. So, But they said it's not him. They said they're not doing it for Wang. They said they're just doing it for the stability of the country. I think it's very obvious that they need Wang because Wang can... Wang's, as Lee Dong Hui said the other day, that Wang is the only one who can really mobilise the KMT's nativist factions. Right. He's the anchor. Yes. He called him the anchor of the KMT because everybody likes him. And he's a smiley guy. <laughs> he doesn't say very much and he talks in riddles most of the time. That's probably why he's popular. <laughs> that's, that's how you stay popular, is yeah. you speak in riddles. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, so a whole raft of reforms that we're looking at, at, at there. Uh, Jane, did anything else stick out to you? Um, what what really struck me is that Jew is pledging to continue with Mars cross-strait policies. Mm. And I think that Jew's put himself in a very difficult position because I think by closely identifying with Ma, he's not going to escape from Ma's shadow. And as we all know, Ma was very unpopular. But he also doesn't have much room to manoeuvre because if he moves more towards the left, he's going to be too close to the DPP. But if he moves more towards the right, he's going to be identified with Hong Xiaojiu. So... Who, of course, got in a big trouble because she had a, her own China policies, yes. didn't she? Which well, the that KMT was why she, didn't particularly like very much. That's essentially why she was sacked, basically, as right. a presidential candidate. Right, and uh, just looking back a little bit further in the week, uh, Eric Jew did come out, uh, not strongly, but, you know, uh, in, in, in some fashion against some of President Ma's policies. Uh, he was very uh, clear in saying that he was not coming out against President Ma, but just, you know, some of the policies that were not as uh, successful. Uh, but like you said, you know, when he made his policy statements yesterday, the what he had to say about the 1992 consensus and uh, the progress on cross-strait relations, that could have been taken cleanly out of any President Mangio speech uh, so far. So uh, definitely uh, walking a, a, a bit of a tightrope. Uh, Gavin, what, what did he have to say about uh, some of President Ma's policies? He was very tactful. He talked about the 12-year education policy, the capital gains tax on securities transactions, and hikes in fuel costs. And he basically said, uh, well, these weren't very popular and the Ma administration should have probably reviewed them a bit better before they made them policy. Mm. He did come out and say he wasn't targeting Ma, though. Yeah. He did say, you know, I'm not knocking one individual, I'm knocking the policies as a whole. Yes, just frankly speaking, I, I don't think this is, would be successful because, first of all, he, I don't think you'll be able to emerge from Mars Shadow with Cross Strait. And secondly, the obvious question, which Tsai has actually asked you before, is if you cared so much about this, why didn't you use your clout to do something about it, particularly when you were KMT chairman? Mm. Right. So I mean, these issues that he's talking about, I mean, I, I think if you ask most people why are you fed up with President Ma, these would not be the issues that they would name. And so if he's saying, oh, these are the issues I'm going to stake my claim on, uh, probably it's it's not going to go too far. He's probably also trying to avoid talking about China. Mm-hmm. Now, this was Hong's big downfall, wasn't it? Every time the woman opened her mouth, the word China came out and everyone went, so right. to speak. So I think he might be sort of saying, OK, I'll focus on these issues because, of course, everyone cares about education. Most people have children. 
and if you invest in the stock market, a lot of people do, you care about being taxed on your earnings. Mm-hmm. And of course, everyone pays electricity and gas bills. So, right, so keep it on the bread and butter. Keep it on the bread and butter. And if, as long as he doesn't talk too much about Beijing, mm-hmm. I think he might be, well, I don't know about all right, but you know, he'll certainly avoid the contretemps that Hong Shou-Chu Relatively calls, all basically, right. Yes. Yeah. I think the question isn't so much whether the public cares about this issue or not, but just the question of credibility. Mm. That after eight years of the KMT government, do people believe they'll actually be, a new KMT government be actually able to deliver? Mm. All right. Uh, well, lots of political questions, more questions than answers, I think, today. Uh, but we're going to have to move on from politics and to our favorite international flashpoint, the South China Sea. Now, quite a few international headlines coming out of that area this week. Uh, The U.S. put China on high alert after one of its warships passed nearby, one of the artificial islands that China has been constructing in the disputed waters. China, true to form, uh, was quick to uh, blast the move as an affront to its territorial sovereignty. Uh, The U.S., meanwhile, says the ship's passage was just part of routine operation and uh, complied with international law. But, uh, you know... Whether or not it complied with international law, it's uh, clearly the most concrete signifier so far uh, that the U.S. does not recognize China's broad claims of sovereignty over uh, much of the region. Uh, Jane, how, how big of an escalation was this this week? Um, it was quite a significant escalation, but at the same time, I think at least the two superpowers were expecting it. I think mm-hmm. that the U.S. people people in the know knew that the U.S. planned to do this. Um, and I think that both superpowers are prepared. So I'd describe it as a kind of controlled escalation that, right. yes, it has ratcheted up the tensions, but it's not unexpected. And I think the main danger in the South China Sea is um, miscalculation or accidents leading to, an ex- you know, being misinterpreted and leading to an escalation of conflict. Right. And a number of analysts uh, were pretty quick to point out that, uh, you know, China gave a full-throated uh, response to this, they were they were quick to criticize it, but uh, they didn't actually engage that ship, and that would have been uh, a much more uh, significant and aggressive way of dealing with this. Exactly, it's a war of words. It's to use a cliche. This is saber rattling, pure and simple, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, so, of course, Taiwan also has claims uh, to the region as well. Uh, Gavin, what have Taiwan's officials been saying about this this week? Well, they just it's like a, it's like a, it's like a broken record with them. Anything mm. turns down there, basically, with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs calling for peaceful resolutions of territorial issues in the South China Sea, and comments like the Ma administration wants to see all parties concerned adopt and conduct what will contribute actions to regional peace and stability. And also, they called on all concerned parties not to raise tensions in the region and resolve disputes by peaceful means and show respect for the principles of relevant international laws. So they basically said, take a Valium and calm down. (laughs) (laughs) And they kind of cut and paste that over uh, out of former press releases. They also came out and touted President Ma Ying-jeou's East and South China Sea peace initiatives again. Right. Again. With a comma again on that one, basically. They drag them out every time there's an issue down there. And talking of cutting and pasting, they're an example of cutting and pasting. <laughs> Basically, they really are. Right. Okay. So we do uh, we do have a fairly good idea of what uh, the government is going to say in these kinds of situations. Uh, what was not as clear this week is how uh, the various candidates uh, were going to react. Uh, so, Gavin, uh, this week we got statements from both the DPP camp and uh, the KMT uh, election campaign camp, and uh, it looks like the DPP is taking a line that's a little bit closer to the U.S. 
Yeah, the DPP's presidential candidate Tsai Ing-wen said she believes that foreign vessels, both military and civilian, are allowed innocent passage through territorial waters, which is basically what the guided missile frigate was doing. Basically... Was going through, innocently passing through water, basically. And yeah, that's, that's what they do, basically repeating what the US had to say about it. It is, yes. And then she also went on to say that all countries have an obligation to maintain the right to freely fly over or navigate through the disputed region, and all parties should abide by the legal principles of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. All right. Uh, and then what did Eric Jew have to say about this? Eric Jew basically said he would not stand behind the United States on the issue, although I'm quite sure he does in a sort of way, really. But his overall strategy on the South China Sea is from Taiwan's perspective and centres of the sharing of economic benefits. That's kind of more that peace initiative uh, that you mentioned. It's is kind of all ago. that, yeah, the, the let's all share everything, everything mm-hmm. get on, peace and love and understanding, which, you know, it's all nice and well and good, but, you know. So, of course, he's uh, probably going to be hoping that this doesn't come up uh, during his talks on his trip to the U.S. He's probably, he said it's not, actually. He said it won't come up. Mm. He said, they're not going to ask me what my stand is on the issue. But unfortunately, and I believe they probably will. Mm. All right. So that'll be a thing to watch. Uh, but Jane, uh, before we turned on these mics, uh, you kind of were mentioning that uh, the DPP is kind of a, of two minds on this point. Yes, there is. Like if you go back to the original history of the U-shaped line, um, a map was drawn up and ni- published in 1947 by the Guomindang government before it fled to Taiwan. And China bases its claims on the South China Sea on this map. But according to Taiwanese um, maritime law experts across the political spectrum, um, these island, the U-shaped line was originally drawn up to show the islands that China was claiming in the South China Sea, mm. that the original map never referred to sea claims. And, it's, and Taiwan has the archives of China's South China Sea claims because the Guomindang brought it to Taiwan when it fled China. So Taiwan's actually sitting on this historical evidence that shows that China was never claiming the high seas, that that was the PRC's subsequent interpretation. And so that's kind of the most controversial thing uh, that China is doing. I mean, mm. the, the Philippines probably doesn't care too much about mm. these tiny islands. What they care about is this expansive claim. Exactly. And that's what the U.S. is concerned about, too, because they think it affects freedom of navigation if mm. they're territorial claims in the high seas. And so then there's uh, there's different ways to kind of interpret this historical evidence uh, and and. and uh, the DPP might take this in, in a couple of different ways, you were telling me? Yes. Well, basically, so the two ways the DPP can clarify Taiwan's claims under UNCLOS. And the first way is to simply define Taiwan's claims as land features and then draw up appropriate e- exclusive economic zones according mm. to the laws under UNCLOS. For example, Taiping Island would probably qualify for an exclusive economic zone. Mm-hmm. Now, that might upset China a little bit. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, the historical evidence is there that China was originally only claiming land features. And in fact, according to um, a book I read about the South China Sea by Bill Hayton, which is quite famous at the moment, Mm. um, some officials with China's foreign ministry have even said that. that. So that would upset China a little bit but not nearly as much as another plan within the DPP, mm. which is to define Taiwan's claims under UNCLOS based on existing occupation. Mm. In other words, all those islands within the U-shaped line that Taiwan doesn't occupy, they wouldn't be making claims based under UNCLOS. Mm-hmm. Now, China would see that as Taiwan withdrawing, re- redrawing its boundaries, which would see us move towards independence. So, so, so basically that would be Taiwan uh, defining itself really differently from... 
uh, it's something that's historically based on you know more China-based claims. Yes, yes. It'd be basically re- redrawing the national boundaries just to include South China. That's how China would interpret it. I mean, the DPP could say something like why the constitution says that we own these islands because we're basing this on the practicalities of the situation and so we're only making claims under UNCLOS based on existing occupation. Mm. But China's I think is very likely to see that as redefining Taiwan's boundaries, which would be seen as a move towards independence. And, and, and so, you know, everybody's looking at this issue as, you know, a potential flashpoint between uh, China, U.S., Japan relations. That's, that's kind of what they're looking at. But you're, you're, you're actually saying that this has the potential to really throw a wrench into cross-strait relations as well. Yes, look, I don't believe it'll actually happen because Tsai Ing-wen's indicated that she'll be very cautious, like she's promised to uphold the constitutional order. So while there are groups in the DPP pushing for that, I think the more conservative option will actually be taken up. Mm. Um, but another thing which is really interesting is like the global intelligence agency Stratfor is sort of taking an interest in this. Mm. And some in the security community in US actually think that the more radical option is better because it will help US interests. But I think that's based on misinformation and um, I don't think they really understand Taiwan well enough and the mm-hmm. cross-strait relationship well enough because mm. um, it might temporarily help US interests in the South China Sea, but there'll be a massive backfire in terms of cross-strait relations. Mm. And I think that's something the US has to think about. Because one of these issues about the South China Sea is the fact that some of these Chinese islands aren't actually land masses. Yes, well, exactly. Like um, the land feature which the destroyer sailed past recently is actually a submerged reef. And technically it gets covered up by sea. Yeah, it gets so covered it by sea in high tides. Yes. as a landmass. So exactly. So no one can claim it. Yeah, they can claim the, I can tell you, they can claim the reef, but they can't claim the 12 nautical mile territorial limit around the reef. Exactly. They? So under UNCLOS, um, the US was um, exercising freedom of navigation by sailing so close to the man-made island. All right. So uh, lots of uh, moving parts, I think. I think that's the take-home point from all this. There's lots of moving parts to pay attention to in this story. I'm just going to add another moving part for people to pay attention to. So uh, in addition to the facts on the ground, in addition to these reefs and these land masses and these uh, moving ships you know, in the region, uh, there is also arbitration going on, uh, international arbitration. Uh, a panel is taking a case from the Philippines, uh, on, on this, uh, the Philippines is, of course, uh, upset with China over their moves in the region. Uh, and that international panel just ruled, uh, I believe, yesterday uh, that it does have jurisdiction over the case. Uh, so it's going to basically the Philippines is going to have its day in court over whether or not China's actions in the South China Seas are, are, are lawful, whether their claims are lawful. So that's a whole nother dimension of this to pay attention to. So uh, we don't even have time to go into that uh, today. But There's some gossip behind the scenes about that. Perhaps I should mention that. That Taiwan is furious with the Philippines because the Philippines took advice from its lawyers mm. and described Taiwan's beloved Taiping Island as a pile of rocks. Oh, no. <laughs> See? So everybody's going to be mad at everybody. This is a whole mess. All right. But uh, we're going to have to leave that whole mess there uh, for now. Uh, when we come back, we've got a little break coming on, but when we come back, we've got crime... And uh, then some more crime. Uh, and then a big old parade. So it, it, it gets better towards the end, is uh, what I'm saying. Uh, so stay tuned for all that after these messages. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around the island. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Jane Ricards. Jumping back into things with a pair of crime stories. Uh, this first one... Kind of came out of nowhere halfway through the week, but it's uh, likely only to get bigger 
Taiwanese law enforcement agencies working in concert with their U.S. counterparts have busted an international prostitution ring. And it could involve some pretty well-known female celebrities. You know, not not A-listers, but, you know, people that are known. Uh, now, this broke earlier in the week, but we've gotten some more details since then. Gavin, uh, what do we know about this ring so far? Well, apparently the ring was organized by a woman called Dai Chun E, and she's been released on half a million NT bail. I'm not sure whether that's a lot of money, because seen other people have been released on a lot more bail than that, so I'm not quite sure how, how serious they're taking this case. But apparently she's been released on bail, and apparently police say that she persuaded, through sort of well-known B-list celebrities and models, to go to America. So they would go to America, thinking they were on holiday, but of course this trafficking ring would keep their passports and they would force the women into prostitution. Right, and so that's how this goes from being just a, a prostitution case to actually being a sex trafficking case, because it sounds like there was some coercion involved. Yeah, lots of coercion. Apparently they, you know, there was more. Obviously the mob was involved somewhere and mm-hmm. violence was no doubt threatened against women who refused to do what the mob wanted them to do. Anyway, there is rumours that it had been dozens, apparently, of local... B is probably too big a stronger word. C-list celebrities and C-list models, basically, yeah, 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 are involved. Yeah, but one of them, one who has been named, is Joanne Leo, mm-hmm. and of course she was a member of the Sunflower Student Movement. Yeah, she was known as the Sunflower Queen because, of course, the local media jumped up and down on her as being a lot of like how to say this without being offensive. The sexiest babe in the student movement. Don't know if you quite made it there without being offensive, but I all right, we get, we get we get the uh, we get the picture. Uh, and so she's been uh, questioned and, and let out on a much smaller bail. I think only fifty thousand. Fifty thousand NT bail. What what is her alleged role in this? Well, apparently she was apparently one of the people that they told to go and talk to some people. So mm-hmm. she was the, the prosecutor, kind of a facilitator. Say, yeah, basically press. Pro, Prosecutors basically say she was involved with the group mm-hmm. as a possible facilitator. Mm-hmm. She didn't. There's no question of her going over there and doing it. Right. But apparently, she was allegedly talked other people yeah. into joining the gang or going over there and listening to this die woman and what she had to say. All right. So, uh, pretty dark story. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about this, learning a lot more. I, I got to say, I the first day when this went up, like all of the papers in Taiwan had Johan Liu on the, you know, on their front pages. But it seems like she either played no role. Prosecutors are saying it's possible she played no role, or played a very small role. So it's really surprising that she. Well, she was the only one that had actually named. Yeah. None of the others have been. And of course, no one knows who the other. No one knows who this ringleader die woman is, and no one yeah. knows who this other person is that was released on bail. So she is the most well-known. Well, she was the well-known face. Yeah. So she became the face of it. I'm sure in the next couple of weeks, t- television variety show hosts and their people are going to be looking for other people to put on their shows when other celebrities start disappearing. All right. To the prosecutor's office. Yeah. So that is probably coming our way. Moving on to our second crime story. Unfortunately, uh, crime news played pretty big this week. Uh, the other major story to dominate the headlines in the last couple of days is the rescue from captors of Hong Kong Pearl Oriental Oil Group chairman Wong Yuk Kwan. Uh, the police rescue came on Tuesday, uh, but before that, Kwan had gone through uh, quite an ordeal, Gavin. He was kidnapped, actually, outside his house in Shindian on the 20th of September. 
by a couple of ruffians who took apparently took not only him but took a couple of his cars as well before they bundled him in the back of a van. That's just insult on top of injury. Basically, it's like, well, we'll have you, we'll have your cars as well. They're quite nice. No mm. doubt they went to a chop shop somewhere, but who knows? Anyway, police raided a house, a disused. It was about half, if the pictures was really funny, it was a completely half empty, half completed house in Yunlin County. It looked like crime was going on there. Yeah, it was obviously a rather stupid place to hold someone because obviously the neighbours went, what are those suspicious people doing in that half-empty house over there? Attention to yourself, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. Anyway, apparently he was kept in this house, blindfolded. There was cloth over the windows. He was apparently beaten a few times. He was covered in bruises. You saw him on the TV. And like I said, they kidnapped him on the 20th, but they didn't actually make a ransom demand until the 17th of October. Yeah, so they asked for 70 million Hong Kong dollars in ransom, but of course, Mr Wong, well, his hands weren't so clean, apparently, because, of course, he was here in Taiwan for medical treatment after receiving bail from Mm -hmm. Hong Kong authorities, because in Hong Kong he was being questioned over a 500 million Hong Kong dollar fraud and money laundering case. And, of course, we don't know what, if any, kind of connection there is between his kidnapping and that case, but one can only speculate. I'm sure John Woo could make a movie about it. Yeah. Uh, But they've caught the main suspect? They caught several of the suspects, 15 suspects. Mm -hmm. What's interesting, though, is apparently a village chief... Mm-hmm. Was also one of the suspects. Yeah, local guy. Yeah, well, basically, these most. It doesn't say who they were, but the village chief caught my eye because, hang on a minute, they caught the village chief. I mean, they didn't say, but maybe the village chief was the guy in charge of the village where the house was. Yeah. Mm. All sounds a bit suspicious to me. Uh, right, so perhaps uh, more detail is going to come out of that uh, soon, hopefully. But, uh, you know, we don't see too many cases like this, these kidnapping cases, but uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. They kind of do harken back to an earlier time in Taiwan, don't they? Yeah, they're blasé now. It's been done. It's <laughs> been it, seen there, done it, basically, with a kidnapping case. It used to happen all the time. I mean, school children were kidnapped. Mm. Every, wives were kidnapped. And we're talking about, like, the 80s, 90s? Yeah, yeah, the 80s. Yeah. The 80s, basically, the early 90s. That was kidnap heaven, basically. Kidnap central. Like the Philippines, basically. Uh, Jane, Jane, you were around to see some of that as well, right? Yeah, the most ex- outstanding example in my mind was the kidnapping of Bai Xiao Yin, the daughter of singer P- Bai Pingping. Um, she was 16 and she was um, kidnapped and a ransom was demanded for millions of New Taiwan dollars. And later um, the gangsters delivered her little finger to Bai Pingping and mm. then... Um, the body her, was found. In a ditch, mutilated and... Um, naked and it was very, very nasty. And yeah. um, what the incident actually did in political terms was to highlight how inefficient Taiwan's police force was because mm. an expert sort of blamed it on the fact that during martial law the police were very good at putting down protests and finding dissidents, but they weren't very clever in catching criminals. Mm. And Chen Jinxing, the mastermind behind um, the kidnapping of um, Bai Xiaoyan, you know, there was... How long, how long was the... Um, Chase, Gavin, you were around at that time. That was about too. three days or two days. It was no, quite... no, no. They were chasing oh, yeah. him for months. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, the end no, of Chen it. Chen yeah. the, Chen, the month. It took months, about yeah. six months to find him. Yes, and finally, Chen Jinshin got desperate and holed himself up in a fam- in the house of a family of the South. Sorry, um, finally, Chen Jinshin got desperate and um, he took a South African diplomat and his family hostage in his house, in the diplomat's house in Beitol. And. Um, Yes, I was actually standing outside the house at the time and it was quite alarming. Like, um, the police wouldn't allow any reporters inside except for the China Post for some reason. But um, you saw the families of the 
family members of the diplomats of coming out in stretches covered with blood, and it was quite scary. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah so very different times that uh, th- this week's events harken back uh, to in Taiwan's history. Uh, uh, Jane, I'm, I imagine you feel somewhat safer covering Taiwan these days? Yes. Um, Organised crime was much more prevalent in the late 90s. For example, the head of the Legislative Yuan's Judicial Committee was a notorious triad leader known as Lawful Jew. Mm. That was in the late 90s. But um, as we were talking about earlier, you know, most of the crime or gangster element in the Legislative Yuan has been virtually eliminated these days. Mm. And, um, yes, Taiwan's much safer, I think. Because there are those who say it's gone more local these days. As more in lo- not being gangsters. in the central government, but in the local government, it still exists. Oh, yes. Yeah, you just reminded me, like, Miali County, and there's allegedly a lot of... And, of course, Taichung, mm. Daja. Uh, yeah. All right. Another allegations of stuff down there. All right, well, we're going to keep our uh, allegations nice and vague. <laughs> no lawsuits against this program, but... Uh, <laughs> All right, so uh, these things have some history to them. They stretch back a ways. Moving on, though, to our final story. Uh, Well, tomorrow is Halloween, but trick-or-treaters won't be the only people hitting the streets of Taipei. In fact, the 2015 Taiwan Pride Parade is scheduled for tomorrow. And, uh, Gavin, this is a pretty big event, right? Yeah, they have it every year. I I think they've had it every year. How many years have they had this now? I think it's since the early noughties, but whether it started in 2002 or 2003, 2001, The actual sure. rally started about 2002, didn't it? The parade. Yeah, around then. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, they, apparently last year they attracted 65,000 people. That's, that's quite, quite a few quite people. A, that's quite a large number for a gay pride parade in Asia. And, of course, that made it basically one of the, if not the largest, gay pride rally in Asia. And it, probably this year will attract even more. And it's not just local people. Foreigners come here to take part in it. Yeah. And believe it or not, if you look on the internet, if you type in LGP Pride Parade Taiwan on the internet, mm-hmm. you end up with like adverts for hotels doing packages for foreigners that come here just to attend the gay pride. Oh, party. to take part in it? No yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. And you've even seen mainlanders too, like mainlanders from Shanghai and mm. um, have gone in past parades. To... Mm. And I imagine, well, that's part of because where Taiwan is uh, on you know the, the spectrum of tolerance uh, within Asia. Uh, we'll, we'll get to kind of the, 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 the bigger picture of that in one second, but uh, really, really quick, I just want to kind of gloss. There was a, there was a fair amount of uh, LGBT rights news uh, that came out this week. Uh, there was, of course, uh, eight same-sex couples that were married last weekend at uh, Taipei's mass wedding ceremony that happens twice a year, and this is the first time uh, that same-sex couples were, uh, took part in the ceremony. Taipei actually was beaten to the punch by Taiyuan. Uh, just a couple of days earlier, they held their own ceremony that welcomed same-sex couples. Uh, so a lot of firsts. Uh, and uh, now Taichung is saying that at their next event, they are also going to welcome same-sex couples. Um, so a lot of movement there. Uh, and then on top of all that, the uh, 6 ILGA Asia Regional Conference, which is the largest LGBT conference in Asia, uh, is being it's wrapping up today, in fact. So... Uh, a lot of stuff coming out uh, of, of Taiwan this week. Uh, but, uh, Jane, I think uh, that that's not too surprising. No, um, Taiwan's quite a world apart for gays when it comes to Asia. Asia's, I think, is more conservative than the West. Um, I've actually spoken to experts about why the gay movement, or the, I really should say the LGBT <laughs> um, movement, so strong. And one of the reasons given to me is Taiwan has a very strong feminist movement and that Chiang Kai-shek had a very harsh and patriarchal dictatorship. But in lots of, as you know, before martial law was lifted in 1987, lots of grassroots organisations, you know, mobilised against this. And the feminist movement had played quite a strong role in this. And Taiwan also has very strong respect for human rights. Mm. 
and um, some a lot of foreigners are surprised to find out that in Taiwan gays can serve in the military quite openly. And what happened with that was that um, the Jung regime ruled that people with sexual orientation impairments, which was sort of an oblique reference to homosexuality, should not, which was described as a mental illness, should not serve in the military. And there was a scandal in 2002 when the media exposed this. And the outcry was so great that um, Taiwan moved to accept gays and gay participation in the military quite openly. Mm. Um, and then a second factor is that religious life here, as everyone probably knows, is dominated by Buddhism and Taoism. And they Which can be, don't have much to say about. Yeah, they can be conservative on this, but compared with the world's other religions, they're mm-hmm. fairly tolerant. Right. And most of the opposition to the LGBT movement here is from conservative Christians, which are about less than 5% of Taiwan. All right. Well, the, that parade is coming to central Taipei tomorrow. Uh, Gavin, just uh, for people that are listening tonight, what, what, what's the route? There's two routes apparently this year. There's usually one route, but there's two routes this year because of the numbers they're expecting. There's called a northern route and a southern route. Okay. And the southern route will go around the south part of the city, and the northern route will go around the northern part of the city, predictably enough. Makes sense. <laughs> and they're meeting outside. I presume they just got Shinny Road Section 1, which I mm-hmm. presume is a, a parallel to the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall area. And apparently it begins there about 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and then they go on their northern and southern route parades, and they all meet up on Zhongshan South Road. All right, so... Uh... You know, if you want to participate, that's where it's going to be. If, if you, you don't want to participate and you're in a car, avoid Zhongshan South Road tomorrow because there's going to be a lot of people. Either way, which where, wherever you stand on that. All right, so that's what to expect tomorrow. Uh, but last up for tonight, for our podcast listeners, uh, we've got your bonus story here. And I'm just going to say in advance, uh, not really a funny story. This one's a bit grim, actually. But uh, it starts off heartwarming. Uh, it starts off with a whale that was rescued just off the coast of Jiayi. So let's uh, let's at least start at a heartwarming spot, Gavin. Yeah, they, they saw this Coast Guard and fishermen and biologists and anyone that was down near Dongshu Township in Jiayi County spotted this 15-metre sperm whale lashing around in the sea near there. And, of course, it got a bit close to the shore, and they thought, oh, we better tow it out. So, of course, they towed it all out back to shore, thinking, here you go, bye-bye, whale, have a nice life. Sadly, the whale didn't go back to shore. The whale washed up dead three days later Ah. near the township. Ooh. And, of course, it's not the first whale to wash up dead, you know, but they do what they do when whales wash up dead here on the shore. They moved it onto the shore properly, Mm -hmm. and then they carried out an autopsy. Right. Want to know what happened? Rather disgusting, really. I do hope my testing tract isn't full of these things. Anyway, they found a mass of plastic bags yeah. and a fishing net inside the whale. A lot of stuff that doesn't go in whales. Doesn't come out either, quite obviously. Even right. more frightening. Yeah. It's all right going in, but coming out, don't come out, you don't want to eat it. No. Nobody wants to eat it, least no, of all whales. No, don't come out, no. Anyway, apparently there was an ex- um, like an excavator bucket. Yeah. They're saying that much junk. That much junk they pulled out of this whale. And that was just the junk they pulled out of the whale. Yeah. And so they're saying that that's probably why the whale was not in good shape to begin with and probably why it died. Well, quite obviously. I mean, if you eat plastic bags in a fishing net, doesn't you're end probably well. going to have to go and see the doctor. <laughs> yeah. But the Society of Wilderness, which is a sort of an environmental group here, did come out and say, yes, the case highlights the growing threat to marine life from ocean trash. Ocean trash, yeah. Ocean trash, obviously garbage, fish, plastic bags and fishing nets. Yeah. 
So you, uh, you, you, you throw out all that plastic and you're taking down the whales. That's what you're doing. Basically, the moral of the story is if you're a whale and you fancy a snack... Avoid the coast around Taiwan. It's probably best to go somewhere else on that one if you fancy a little nibble because all you're going to get around here is plastic bags and fishing nets. Of course, but this, of course, while it's not a very nice story, there was a good side because this whale did not explode when they put it on the back of a truck to take it to be autopsied. That is, that's true because that's ago, happened. Several years ago in Tainan, a whale that washed up down there, they put it on the back of a truck. Mm. It was driving through Tainan. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it was decomposing, it was getting bigger, it was getting bigger. The lorry obviously hit a bump on the road and said whale exploded, sending matter just about everywhere across the street. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so we've uh, thoroughly grossed out all of our listeners now. Uh, Quite an explosive issue. (laughs) Quite an explosive issue. Yes, yes, indeed. Is that too bad? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's exactly what this segment needed. Well, something sounds fishy or whale of a time. Not a fish, though. It's a whale. Sorry, it's a whale, not a fish. I know, but I was thinking about the puns, like (laughs) something sounds fishy and a whale. No, no, that was good. Explosive. That was good. That was good. All right, that's exactly what the bit needed. Uh, We're we're keeping all of this in, by the way. None (laughs) of that is going to get edited out. Uh, All right. So uh, sorry for our listeners to. Ended on that uh, note, but at least at least we rounded it out with a pun. So we, we gave you something to work with. We are going to leave things there. You can send us your thoughts on the week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you are listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. Let us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Hey, good night. And Jane Ricards. Thanks, Keith. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.